Well, good morning, West Park. Good morning. Good to see you today. Uh, my name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my great joy to be able to bring the word this morning. We're in this series on the book of Ephesians, and we have gone through the what we ought to know about the gospel in the first half, verses chapters one through three, and now we're into the second half, chapters four through six, about how we ought to live the gospel. So in chapter four, Pastor Charles kind of walked us through this idea of we were, uh, we, we had this old self that we needed to put off, and now we have this new self that we need to put on, and he kind of gave some different ideas around that. And then last week I talked about how we are, we were darkness, now we are light, and we have now a responsibility to walk as children of light. And now Paul is going to continue on this idea of using a comparative thing. He's going he's gonna to look at wisdom and foolishness, and we're going to see how that plays out in the life of the believer. But what I want us to understand before we get into the text this morning is where you stand as a Christian. What it actually means for you to be somebody who is united to Jesus in Christ, saved by grace, adopted to sonship, and kind of give us a little bit of an overview of what Ephesians actually taught us. So in the first, uh, first half of Ephesians, chapters one through three, Paul lays out this beautiful reality that we are now in Jesus, we were dead, now we're alive, we've been given every spiritual blessing, and the word that we use for that is redemption. Christian, you have been redeemed. You've been purchased back. You've been bought by the blood of Christ. That means you were a certain way, and now because of this thing that has happened, you are different now. And because of redemption, you are what's called holy. You're consecrated. You're set apart for God's good purposes and his will. You are different from how you used to be. And because of what Jesus has done, he has given you his righteousness. The theological term that we use for this is imputed. That Jesus takes on your sin and he gives over to you his righteousness so that when God sees you, he sees a perfected human. Not perfect in terms of morally perfect, we're still going to fall, but he sees you as he sees Jesus. Because as being united in him, you have gone from being utter darkness into light. Another way of saying this is that you have now the opportunity to become in action what you already are in position. See, in Jesus, you are positionally right and holy before God. That's what the first half of Ephesians teaches us. And the second half is, now that you are positionally different, live differently. And so that's what we're continuing to look at today. So the title of the message is this. Becoming what you are, because you're different now, and how that relates to life in the church. So uh, the big idea for today's message is this. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21 commands two attributes. There's obviously there's more than that, but we're gonna focus on two today. Essential for every Christian, all right? That's where we're going today. So we're gonna, we're gonna read Ephesians chapter 5, 15 through 21. If you would, please to stand as we honor God and his word. And you can follow along either in your Bible or Bible app or just follow me as I read. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God for the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
So we're looking at this section of wisdom versus foolishness and what it actually looks like to live a life in the spirit. And so there are those two commands and we're going to see them as we break it down. So here we go. Chapter 5, verse 15. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, so making a comparison here, but as wise. Be, do a different, have an about face, make a shift. Then he says this, making the best use of the time because, there's a reason, the days are evil. All right, so what does, he, what does he mean by these things? Well, the first thing is look carefully actually means be strictly concerned, be strictly cautious and aware. And then this word walk is better translated live. So be strictly cautious how you live, not as an unwise person, but now as a wise person. Then he uses this phrase, making the best use of time. Well, this best use of time is that word redeem. You are to redeem the time as a Christian. You're supposed to purchase it back. The word in Greek is exegorzazo, which means exercise. It's do something, be actively involved in it. Take back what was taken from you. So make best use of the time, redeem it, because the days are evil. What's really interesting here is that when Paul says, be strictly cautious how you live, this is exactly what he's been talking about for the last chapter and a half. All of chapter four is about be careful how you live. Then the next half of it is be careful how you live. And now he just outright and says it, be careful how you live. It's like it's trying to get a message across, right? It seems like what Ephesians is trying to help us understand is that there is this gospel that changes us and now because of the gospel, we're supposed to live differently. And so this life of redeeming the time, what Jesus is doing is he's inviting us into his ministry of reconciliation. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit later. But then Paul says, because the days are evil. Notice that he doesn't say because the days are short or the days are long. He's not talking about days in terms of time. He's talking about days in terms of effect. He's talking about days in terms of what they are, what, what the condition of the time actually is. And Pastor Charles has talked about this on many occasions before. That there's two Greek words for time. Chronos, like the chronology of time, and kairos, the events of time. So one that Paul is using here is he's, he's digging into this idea of the events of time a little bit more and trying to help us understand something significant. So because the days are evil, what does that mean? Well, it means that the devil is at work. That even though Jesus' kingdom has been established, it's not fully present yet. So because Jesus has made us his own, he's redeemed us by his blood, brought us into this family and kingdom called the church, we are now positionally right before him and we are becoming more holy as we live our lives. That's the process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. We're, we're taking off our old self, we're putting on our new self. All those things are what we're supposed to do and we're doing them in spite of the fact that the days are evil. That Jesus' kingdom is not fully established on earth and it's not ever going to be fully established until he comes again and takes us home. So why, why does he use this phraseology? Because he's trying to help us understand that Satan is at work and we as Christians are to redeem the time. We're to buy back from Satan what he's trying to steal. We're supposed to be active in the way in which we live, to, to call people from death to life, inviting them into this relationship that God offers through Jesus. Everything that we just sang about. But notice something else that's really significant. Making the best use of time because the days are evil, it, it, it almost has this kind of ring that it's already happening. So it's make the best use of your time because the others made best use of theirs. 
Just by being a Christian, being brought to life from death by Jesus because of grace in faith, you now are pushing back the gates of hell. That's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus said it to his disciples. He says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. A better translation of that is the gates of hell are going to be pushed back by the church. We're actually going to push, actively go against what the enemy is doing in these evil days. And we're going to live the way that God calls us to live. We're going to redeem the time because these days are evil. Then he says this, therefore, don't be foolish. Here's another comparison, but understand. So don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And now this can get a little bit tricky because some of us tend to think of the will of the Lord as like, well, I got to figure out what God's will for my particular situation. And this is, should I wear blue shoes today or should I wear red shoes today? Right, Matt? You got to figure out like, what shoes am I supposed to wear? That's, that's an important decision. We're not talking about that. But this word foolish means lacking sense. So therefore, don't lack sense, but understand. This word understand means to grab or to grapple with, to come to grips with what the will of the Lord is. And a couple things can come to mind, like uh, when, when you're younger and you're trying to figure out where you're supposed to go to school or who you're going to marry or where you're going to live or what kind of job you're going to do. All of us, uh, I've, been in, I've been doing college ministry for a long time and student ministry before that. And I hear those questions a lot. Like, what am I supposed to do with my life? I got to figure out God's will. And my response is always the same. What do you love to do and bloom where you're planted? Just bloom where you're planted. Be like Jesus where you are. Now, he might have a particular calling for your life that he is kind of leading you towards. And I hope that you've got godly men and women in your life that can help you figure that out. But trying to understand what the will of the Lord is, remember, we're, we're looking at the context of what Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. And the will of God in this entire process is that we be redeemed by Jesus, united to Christ, and to live the gospel. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what the will of the Lord is. He's not trying to, he's not like putting the sentence in here to confuse everybody. It's to remind us what we've already been told throughout the rest of the Ephesian text. Paul is exhorting, he's encouraging the Ephesians to make the most of their time, to redeem it, to be wise, understand that they need to live in a different way, being alert, being aware, being a cautious, and not allowing the devil to gain a foothold. That's the will of the Lord, that the church actually does the church that we do the things that Jesus called us to do and we actively, as we move along in life, look more and more like Jesus in process. And then he says this, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine. That's one command for that is debauchery. We're gonna talk about that. But be filled with, this is really, really significant, so I'm underlining it a lot, the Holy Spirit. The command, do not get drunk with wine. Okay, so this, this is where uh, historically, uh, I didn't grow up in a Baptist context. I didn't grow up in a, in a Reformed context. So the, the idea of alcohol and Christians to me was a foreign concept. I didn't understand that it was a big deal for some people that like alcohol is something that we shouldn't touch and whatever. It, it, was, it was foreign to my understanding. This is not a proof text for saying that Christians cannot consume alcohol, okay? What Paul is saying here is that you should not get drunk with wine, but he compares it to something else. Instead of being filled with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that you should, you should drink all you want and get drunk because we just got a command here that drunkenness is debauchery. That's a problem. This word debauchery means uh, a, a, an excessive, 
indulgence in sensual pleasures. Remember last week when we talked about sexual sin? It's, it's kind of using similar phraseology around this idea of drunkenness. And, and what we're supposed to understand is that when Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, he's saying, don't be controlled by something other than the Holy Spirit. Don't be controlled by something that can consume you, take you over, replace your, your understanding, that can change the way that you're thinking about something. And now, we, you, you can change this with TV, you can change this with drugs, you can change this with gambling, whatever that looks like. I think the principle remains the same. But what we're being told here is that drunkenness is debauchery. And this excessive sensual pleasure comes from this idea that inside of scripture, drunkenness always leads to shame. Let's go back to an earlier part in the Bible. We go to Genesis, right? And then Noah is called by God because he's the righteous man. He's the only righteous man in his time. And God calls Noah and says, I want you to build an ark and there's going to be rain. And they hadn't had rain yet. So he's trying to figure out, well, what does this mean? And people are all making fun of him. And I want you to get two of every kind of animal. And I want you to put them on the ark. And we're going to, and we're going to save humanity through your family. It's like, good job, Noah. Excellent guy to emulate. And then as soon as they get off the ark after their year, he builds a tent, he gets drunk, and he lays naked there and shames his children. Drunkenness is always linked to shame. Uh, later on in Genesis, Lot, who is Abraham's, uh, Abraham's nephew, he, he's married to this woman, and you remember, she's, she looks back at the city and she turns to a pillar of salt. She wasn't really a great example. Ladies, don't emulate her. Uh, but later on, his, his daughters get older and they're not married and they don't have sons. And so what are we supposed to do? Oh, I know what we can do. Let's get our dad drunk and then I'll sleep with him and we'll have a son. And then you get him drunk and you sleep with him and I'll have a son. And it's, whoa, 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 whoa. Leads to shame. So this excessive sensual pleasures is, is, is basically trying to help us understand that drunkenness is not to be on the lips of the Christian. There's another way that this plays out. In pagan worship in the Greek culture, drunkenness was just part of worship. It was, it was almost akin to uh, what some people today would call the metaphysical experience of drugs. So once you, you get high, there, there are some people who would claim to be Christians who are like, I'm going to get really high so that I can experience something of, of God in, in some sort of metaphysical different realm that I wouldn't be able to experience because now my inhibitions are lowered and, and, uh, and God has the opportunity to speak to me. And that's actually exactly what Paul is talking about here saying to the worshipers, now this was your pattern before, don't do this any longer, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. So instead of being filled with drink to the point of losing control or to the point of shame, Christians are to be filled not with substance, but by God's own spirit. And it says, but be filled with, and it's very interesting because this word could also be translated as by. So be filled by the Holy Spirit or be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's some conversation between uh, different scholars about what that actually means. Is it with or is it by? And I think it doesn't matter because you can't be filled with God's Spirit unless you're filled by God's Spirit. And you can't be filled with anything by God's Spirit that isn't God's Spirit. So we're supposed to understand that what we're being called to is not to let anything get in the way of what it is that we're supposed to do, but now we're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to live differently. I think this clearly leads to a holistic understanding of what it means for the Christian to live out the gospel. If we were dead and now we're only alive because the Spirit of God lives in us and has given us new life, then the only way to live that new life is with the Spirit of God. It, does, it doesn't happen any other way. It's like you can't become more of a Christian by trying really hard and ignoring the fact that the Holy Spirit's got to do the work. 
And Galatians chapter five gives us the list of the fruit of the spirit. But there are love and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And if we don't live those things out in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we're just trying to make up more rules for ourselves to keep ourselves confined and not in freedom. No, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit so that we can continue to live like we're filled by the Spirit. And then Paul continues in verse 18. He says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So because I'm like the worship guy, like this is the most important part of the passage, right? He says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Notice two things. This word addressing means two different things and it can be interchanged a couple times. Uh, if you're a note taker, you're gonna want to write this down. It means serving and it means teaching. That you are to serve one another in singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and you are to teach one another in the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and you're supposed to do that with singing as you're filled by the Spirit to make melody to God in your heart. Now, whether these things are really particular, like, okay, we can only sing the psalms and we can only sing the hymns that I like and we can only sing the spiritual songs that are good. No, we're not talking about that. These things are to help us understand that there's a, a multitude of avenues in which we can approach God in corporate worship. We can sing the psalms because they're inspired by God's spirit. We can sing hymns and what Paul's referring to here is not necessarily the hymns that we think about, but he, he's talking about the hymns that we see in the New Testament. A great example of one of these is Philippians chapter two. Uh, another one is, is, uh, is 1 Corinthians 15, where there are hymns given as Paul writes to the churches. Remember this thing that we sing? We're supposed to encourage one another, serve and teach each other with the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Making in your heart a melody to the Lord. Uh, Colossians chapter three. Colossians is my very favorite book. My very favorite book of, of the Bible. I, I just, I can't get enough of it. Uh, in, in chapter three in verse 16, Paul says to the, the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So it's exactly the same kind of thing, but he, he goes, he takes it a little bit of a step further. I would actually argue it's the exact same thing because he says, be filled with the spirit addressing one another and the other side of it, Colossians saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What's the job of the Holy Spirit? In the, in the life of a believer, there's, there's many, but one of the preeminent ones is that the Holy Spirit gives us sight to understand the scriptures. He illuminates the Bible to us so that when we see truth, it's because the Spirit of God is working in and through us to be able to understand what it is that's said. So as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, we'll, the outpouring is that we will sing with one another and to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then in verse 20, he says, giving thanks some of the time, and for the things that I like. No, he says, for always and for everything, give thanks to the God and Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is super, super significant. We are to give thanks, be, have a life that's marked by gratitude in every situation. For everything, what is, what is Paul referencing here? This idea of being thankful for everything is to lead us all the way back through Ephesians. So here's what we're to be thankful for. We were darkness, now we are light. We're supposed to be thankful for that. That's Ephesians chapter five. We had an old self, but we're told to put on the new self and that only is possible by the power of the spirit. We're to be thankful for that, chapter four. That we are now united in Jesus with this multi-ethnic, multi-generational family we call the church. That we're part of something that's bigger than ourselves. That's chapter three. 
That we have been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves and not of any work that we can boast, but it is from free salvation that Jesus offers. That's chapter two. And that we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ to be able to live the light of the gospel in the world. Ephesians chapter one. So we're supposed to thank God always for these realities and we're supposed to thank him in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? Well, in the name of the Lord Jesus really means in under the authority of Jesus because it's only possible that these things happen because of him. If Jesus doesn't die on the cross, then we have no salvation. If he doesn't rise from the dead, then we don't have free life. It's really, really significant of what he's saying. And then he adds this in at the end. And some, some different versions will actually separate chapter, uh, verse 21 from, uh, from the next stanza. I think that this is the correct way to put it, is at the end of uh, verse 20, that it shouldn't have like a, another subject heading where it goes into marriage. I think that this one belongs here. He says, submitting, we're going to talk about that, to one another out of reverence for Christ. This word reverence means holy fear that we are to submit to one another. This submission idea is the idea of willingly coming under to support. We're to willingly come under one another in support, to encourage one another out of the fear of Christ. Now, the fear of Christ doesn't mean like we're afraid that Jesus is gonna squash us when we do something bad, but understanding that he's capable of that. Understanding that he owns the whole thing, that it belongs to him, that everything that is right in a Christian's life is because of Jesus. We're supposed to see him as the preeminent, ultimate figurehead of all of humanity. We're supposed to view him with reverence, with a holy fear that understands positionally I am nothing without Jesus. He brings everything to me. And because I did nothing to earn this, I submit to everyone else. I come under them to encourage them. That submitting word kind of gets a little bit fuzzy. Here's another way of looking at it. The Greek term for submission means to arrange. In non-military use, the way that Paul's using it here, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, of cooperating, of assuming responsibility, of carrying a burden. Does it sound like anywhere else in the New Testament? The number of times that we are to love one another, we're to carry each other's burdens, we're to walk alongside of one another? It's significant. But this only happens when we do so out of holy fear, when we realize that we are not the ultimate person in the story. We focus on Jesus. All right, so that's the understanding of the text. We're gonna kind of move into some practicals now, okay? So how do we actually do this? What are we supposed to see? And the big idea, like I showed you before, is that Ephesians 5, 15 through 21 commands two attributes that are essential for every Christian. So we're gonna walk in those and I'm gonna do my best to explain them. The first one is this, wise living. Wise living. Ephesians 5, 15 through, 20, 15 through 17, it says this. Look carefully, remember, be strictly cautious how you live, not as unwise, but as a wise person, making the best use or redeeming the time because the days are evil. The devil is still at work. We're not fully in God's kingdom yet. Therefore, do not be foolish, lacking sense, but understand, grab, grapple what the will of the Lord is, that you actually live the life of the Spirit. And so that looks like wise living. But sometimes it's easier for us to kind of see like the comparison, right? So we're, there's wisdom over here and there's foolishness over here. So I, I broke it down this way. The wise person fears God. And if, if you've got your notes, there's like those little blanks if you're the note-taking. My mom is the note-taking person, so she's already writing. Now everybody's looking at my mom. Okay. Uh, 
The wise person fears God. This is Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So what does a foolish person do? They reject God. A foolish person rejects God. Second person, the wise person lives cautiously. Proverbs 14.16 says this. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil. The foolish person lives recklessly, but a fool is reckless and careless. The wise person invites and accepts correction. Proverbs 10.8 says, The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. A foolish person denies and ridicules correction because they don't think that they need it. A foolish person also says in Proverbs 12.15, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And then lastly, of these four, the wise person embraces purity and godliness where the fool pursues self-indulgence. The wise person embracing purity and godliness in James chapter three, kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus writes, but the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, that wise person embraces these things, has a fear of God, lives cautiously, is, is aware of how they are, are, are living their conduct. They invite and accept correction when it's given, and they embrace purity and godliness because that's what life in the spirit actually looks like. But the fool, the fool rejects God and says there is no God. Another place in the Proverbs says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. In Psalm 2, it says the same thing. The fool lives recklessly. They, they go about doing their business the way that they think that they should do it and instead of thinking about the implications and consequences of their actions, they just continue to do and to do and to do and to do without any consequence in their mind whatsoever. Also, the fool denies and ridicules correction. They don't want somebody to tell them what to do. That's, that's a hindrance on my freedoms. That's against, that's against how I want to live my life because I'm the master of my own destiny. No, God calls us to live certain ways for our good and for our flourishing. And also the foolish person pursues self-indulgence. Their life is all about them. It's never about serving and caring for one another. It's not about submitting to the benefit of others. Jesus actually speaks about this a great deal in the Sermon on the Mount. So listen to this as I read Matthew chapter 7. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as he's explaining at the end of the sermon, he's just given this amazing sermon to these people that are listening to him, primarily to the disciples, about how it looks to live the kingdom. And then he, and he culminates it with this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And then the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been built on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Then the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat against the house and that house fell and great was its fall. Remember though that the, the reason for wise living is, is certainly not to puff ourselves up and to make ourselves look better than others who maybe aren't believers and don't have the understanding of the gospel that we do, but it's to be a godly example, a gospel witness. Another way to say it is to become in action what you are in position. So when Jesus speaks about these things in wisdom, he's calling for action. 
So many of us, I kind of think like, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. I'll, I'll become wise later. Well, no, you need to become wise now. Because wisdom is something that we need in order to redeem the time that's been given to us. But gaining wisdom is not something that we can do on our own. Gaining wisdom is actually something that we need each other pretty substantially for. Tim Keller, who's one of my very favorite authors, you're going to hear me quote him anytime I preach uh, because he's much smarter than me. Uh, he tweeted this a few years back, and I just saw it again in like a Facebook memory. You know how you can kind of go back and see the things that you said forever ago when you were younger and less wise? Um, you, you find something like this, and this is what Tim Keller says. The one essential requirement for building, so it's process, godly, mature Christians is in fact godly, mature Christians. It's essential. We need each other. Younger people in this room, you can define that however you want to. Listen, listen to me as I say this. There are wonderful, godly men and women who have served Jesus faithfully for their lives who attend our church and who are part of the life and ministry here. Ask them to invest in you. Ask them, come alongside and say, I don't know you, but I'd love to, I'd love to go up for coffee and just, well, if you're, if you're like me, you don't drink coffee, pick something that's better than coffee. Uh, I'd love to just kind of hear your story and you have a, you have a marriage that I want to emulate in my marriage. You, you live a life of service to Jesus that I want to emulate in my own life. Older folks, define that how you will. Find somebody younger than you. Take an interest in them. Be willing to invest in them. Come alongside of them. Encourage them. Support them. Offer them wisdom. Ask them questions. Look for opportunity to, to give courage, to encourage them. Become what you are under the loving guidance of a fellow believer who is further along the path than you. Caitlin and I have this. There's a couple in our church who are our mentor couple. When we spend time with them about once a month, we'll, we'll go for dinner, we'll talk about life. We're always encouraged by what we're told and what's shared. We're always challenged. We're, well, we, always, we always feel loved and appreciated. But it's an opportunity for us to learn and to gain insight, to ask questions of stuff well, as we deal with toddlers running around driving us nuts and as we try to figure out how to do finance as well and honor Jesus. It's, it's, that's the kind of opportunities that we need. But none of us can do that for you. You have to stand up and do it yourself. And if you don't, if, if like the one-on-one -on -one thing is a little bit scary to you, here's the other thing you can do. You could join a, Maddie, what am I going to say? Join a life group. Join a life group. It's been the most beneficial thing of my life to invest in the other people that are in the 10, group, the 10 people that are in our life group. Because we have support, we have camaraderie, we have wisdom that we share and can gather with one another. It's essential. The only essential requirement for building godly mature Christians is godly mature Christians. We need each other. All right, then the next quality is this. The next attribute is this, spirit-filled living. So there's wise living, which I would argue is only empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit, but spirit-filled living in this context takes on something else. So in 18 to 21, this is what Paul says. Don't get drunk with wine because that's debauchery. That's, that's excessive sensual desires. But the next command is, but do be filled with the Spirit. Addressing, teaching, encouraging, serving one another in the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name, the authority of the Lord Jesus. So what, what does it look like, as Paul says, as a, a, a representation of being filled by the Holy Spirit? 
that we serve one another, we teach one another as we gather as a church. The command that Paul is expressing here is significant. Don't be drunk, but be filled. It's not, it's not even surface stuff. It's, he's trying to remove an obstacle and replace it with something beneficial. The truth of drunkenness is that it continues to overpromise and underdeliver. It's often replaced with anxiety, regret, and grave sorrow. So Paul says, don't live that way, but instead invite the Spirit of God into your life to move and to shape you. He moves on to 19 and 20, giving thanks to the Lord for everything always, for all that he has already given you. And thank God the Father because of Jesus. And so we're supposed to sing the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but look at this. It says we're supposed to do this for one another, but we're also supposed to do this to the Lord. So it means when we gather and we sing, there's something significant that happens, and here's what that something significant is. When you are here, see how that's you? Okay, just making sure. Paying attention. You sing to God about God for the glory of God. But there's also the horizontal perspective that you, as you are engaging with your brothers and sisters, you are serving and teaching them what they need to know about gospel life. When you don't sing, you rob your neighbor of what they may need from Jesus and his spirit. That's what it says. Supposed to teach and admonish one another in the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. See, this this is significant. When you gather, you are encouraging, building one another up. Here's Here's an excellent little video about what this actually looks like from a practical perspective from Pastor John Piper. So watch this video now. I think I'm still married because of corporate worship. What do you mean by that? I was hoping you would ask. (laughs) Noel and I would have periodic real struggles. Real struggles. Not communicating, hurting each other with our words, um, feeling hopeless that we could be happy. And I would, go to, I would go to church under those awful conditions mm. and I'm supposed to preach. Mm. And in those moments of singing His greatness, His mercy, the gospel, I would generally be melted. Mm. And I would feel hope. Excellent. I would feel like, what an idiot. Mm. What an idiot. Mm. That you made that much of that. And that's what happened to me repeatedly in song. In corporate worship, God struck me down. Excellent. With hope. Mm. He struck me down. Mm. You you proud, arrogant, selfish jerk. And he did that with the gospel. And then picked me up, enabled me to preach, and go home and... Press on. Excellent. We're quite happy today, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) These are good days. Mm. Excellent. Yes, they are. What? Corporate singing saved his marriage on multiple occasions. Now, Pastor John Piper doesn't throw words around lightly. When we gather as the church to sing the praises of Christ for the glory of God, what we are doing is pushing against the gates of hell. 
We're saying to the devil, you don't get to win because the gospel is true. I get to see Jesus working in my life because when I come to church and I gather and I sit here and I listen to the body sing around me, my heart is stirred and encouraged with the gospel. We're filled by the Spirit as we sing, as we admonish, as we teach one another in song. My guess is that many of us are not going to remember anything that I preach about in four weeks, but you're going to remember songs that we sing. You're going to. There is power in the gospel sung. And it's been true in my own life. You've, I've, I've wept from the platform as your worship leader, not because of anything that I'm doing, but because I've needed you. I've needed you. That you've sung back the gospel to me. And I get it, while the worship band and the worship team leads us in congregational worship, you had better believe, church, that you lead us. You strengthen and encourage us when we sing together. This is the reason why we do this. Singing isn't just some perfunctory thing we do because we do it. It's spiritual warfare. It's encouragement of the saints. It's the building of gospel realities in our lives. And so we're supposed to do that by submitting to one another, coming under and supporting one another out of the holy fear of Jesus looking for ways to serve, to love, to encourage, to embolden, to strive with and carry the burdens of others. As we put Jesus first, we are due to do that together. So what does it look like? The two commands for every, the two commands of attributes essential for Christians. Wise living, don't be a fool, but yet instead be filled by God's spirit. Encourage, teach, admonish, live alongside of one another as we sing the gospel, as we're built up in Jesus and as we submit to him as Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that the, the gospel is the truth, that it sets us free, that it saves us from ourselves and that out of the overflow of your goodness, we together as the church, when we gather and sing the praises of our God, are made more like Jesus. Would you, doing what only you can do by your spirit, fill us again with new, fresh excitement, joy, overflowing gratitude of all that you have benefited us in Jesus Christ. And would we, this small church, but we, this, this little slice inside of the, the gigantic community of faith we call the church, would we be a blessing not only to each other, but a place of hope and encouragement to the rest of our world. We pray it in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.